Peace be upon you. So oftentimes, traditionalists make the following argument. They say that it's impossible to reject the Hadith without also rejecting the Quran. And their argument is that the Quran and the Hadith were all preserved and transmitted by the same mechanisms. So if you reject one, you have to reject the other. Now, this is absolutely laughable if it wasn't so blasphemous. To equate the preservation of the divine book, the Quran, with that of the Hadith, uh, it's not even comparable. So God willing, in this episode, we're going to look at why this is a false comparison and it's completely legit to accept the Quran and reject the Hadith. So the first reason to why the preservation of the Quran uh, is way superior to any preservation of the Hadith is that God guarantees its preservation in the scripture. In Surah 15 verse 9, it says, Absolutely, we have revealed the reminder and absolutely we will preserve it. So this is God's divine guarantee that he will preserve this book. Now, some people, they argue, they say, well, the word in Surah 15 verse 9 is dhikr, the reminder. And therefore, this is not the Quran, that it's the reminder that it's something else. Except the dhikr is just another name for the Quran. Uh, for instance, in Surah 21 verse 10, it says, We have sent down to you a scripture containing your dhikr, your reminder. Do you not understand? So the dhikr is the Quran. It's just another name for the Quran. So when God says, absolutely, we have revealed the reminder and absolutely we will preserve it, this is exclusively only in reference to the Quran itself and not the Hadith corpus. The second reason that the uh, preservation of the Quran is far exceeding the preservation of the uh, Hadith is that the Quran is impossible to imitate. Several times in the Quran, we're given the following challenge. For instance, in Surah 17, verse 88, it says, Say, if all the humans and all the jinns banded together in order to produce a Quran like this, they can never produce anything like it, no matter how much assistance they lent to one another. So this is giving us, again, another divine guarantee that if all the humans, all the jinns, everyone banded together to produce a Quran like this, they will never be able to. So therefore, we don't have to go through a sea of various Qurans and try to determine which one is God's words because it's, it's impossible to imitate. Now, the Quran goes further. Three times in the Quran, it challenges individuals to try to create even one surah or ten surahs like these. In Surah 2, verse 23, it reads, If you have any doubt regarding what we revealed to our servant, then produce one surah like these and call upon your own witnesses against God if you are truthful. Then we see another challenge in Surah 10, verse 38. It says, If they say he fabricated it, say, then produce one surah like these and invite whomever you wish other than God if you are truthful. Surah 11, verse 13, it says, If they say he fabricated the Quran, then tell them, then produce ten surahs like these fabricated and invite whomever you can other than God if you are truthful. So God is reassuring us that individuals, humans, and jinns cannot even replicate one of these surahs because there are certain invisible forces that are preserving this Quran that were not known until modern times. And this has to do with the numerical and mathematical structure of the Quran. We saw in a previous episode how the uh, numerical structure of the Quran works as well as how Code 19 is used to preserve the authenticity of this text to give assurances that the transmission we have, that we open up today and we read, is exactly what was given to the Prophet uh, 1400 years ago. 
And what's interesting to this is that Surah 10 is a chapter that starts with the initials Alif Lam Ra, uh, as well as Surah 11. And Surah uh, 2 is a chapter that starts with Alif Lam Mim. And anyone who's familiar with Code 19 knows that these letters are basically the foundation for the preservation of this text. So all this makes the Quran impossible to imitate. But is that the case with the Hadith? What we see when we study the Hadith literature is that in the 9th century, during the life of some of the most famous Hadith narrators, Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, they were swimming in a sea of millions of fabricated narrations of Hadith. While today they claim that Bukhari sifted through some 600,000 Hadith looking for the ones that he deemed Sahih, authentic, his biography actually states that he went through 10 million Hadith. In the book, An Introduction to Sahih Bukhari, it cites the following hadith from Tariq Bukhara. It says that Bukhari stated, I wrote from over 1,000 teachers, and from each teacher over 10,000 hadith. I remember the chain for every hadith that I know. So in this hadith, he's claiming that, again, 1,000 teachers, and from each teacher over 10,000 hadith, and that he wrote all these down. If we run the numbers, what we see is that this equates to over 10 million hadith, right? 1,000 times 10,000. Now, this is just plain absurd because even if Bukhari spent every waking minute of his life just writing down hadith, let alone, you know, memorizing all those isnads, if we generously assume that Bukhari could write one hadith and memorize its isnad every minute, that's a very generous uh, uh, assumption, it would take Bukhari over 19 years to do what he just claimed that he was doing. That he uh, uh, met 1,000 teachers and from each he wrote 10,000 hadith and he memorized the isnad for every single one of them. 19 years, no bathroom breaks, no eating, no sleeping. If he was just purely doing that, assuming again that he could write down one hadith and memorize its isnad every minute. And this is coming from his own biography. And this is the person that they're putting the most uh, trust into. What's funny, in the uh, same biography, it states that Bukhari said, During my stay in Nashapur, I would receive letters from my relatives in Bukhara, conveying their greetings. I would intend to respond to their greetings, but their names would escape me. So I never replied. However, rarely did I forget knowledge. So this individual who could memorize the Isnad for 10 million Hadith was incapable to memorize the names of his own relatives. But this is all a tangent compared to the uh, core topic, which is, is the preservation of the Hadith the same as that of the Quran? The point is that according to Bukhari himself, he went through 10 million Hadith. And not only were there millions of fabricated Hadith that he deemed not Sahih, not authentic, even the Hadith that were compiled later as authentic, what you'll see is there's inconsistency in the aspect if one considers them reliable or not. So in Sunnah Abu Dawood, I just literally, you can open up the book, the first page, what you can see is on sunnah.com, they have it rated, the Abu Dawood number two, as Sahih. But then if you get the uh, printed edition by uh, Darsulam, you see that they rated it as Da'if. So this shows there's no consistency in being able to determine what is actually authentic or not. So if they're saying that the preservation of the Quran and the Hadith should be one and the same, then why do we not have this problem with the Quran? You know, we're not debating through millions of different Qurans. 
uh, trying to figure out which one is an actual Quran from God and which one is not. And this again shows that the preservation of the Hadith is nothing like the preservation of the Quran. In actuality, the push towards this Sahih movement, uh, selecting uh, Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah uh, as part of the Sitta, is because there was such a sea of Hadith. You're talking about millions and millions of Hadith. And these aren't just differences in Isnad, the chain of transmitters. They're differences in content. And it was causing such problems for people because how is it possible 500 years after the death of the Prophet, people are creating new Hadith with Isnads as short as three individuals. It's absurd. So to combat this, they, they canonized those works in the Sita. And they, they wanted to limit the Hadith corpus to only what was in these books with some exceptions. They would accept the Mu'atta, they would accept the uh, Musnad of uh, Ibn Hanbal to some extent. But they wanted to reduce the scope because they realized there were so many fabricated hadith out there that they were running into challenges as far as determining which one was authentic and which one was not. And again, this shows that the preservation of the Quran is far superior to the preservation of the hadith. The preservation of the hadith is like an afterthought. You know, it's riddled with so many errors, so many inconsistencies that they have to uh, search through millions and millions of hadith and try to grade them. Because they can't tell which one is actually from the prophet and which one's a fabrication. But we don't have that problem with the word of God. Because no one can imitate God's scripture or even a surah of the Quran. And this brings us to the third point. That no other book in history has been memorized by more people than the Quran. Either in its entirety or partially. Ever since the prophet received the first revelation... People have been memorizing this text and passing it from generation to generation. And this is the reason someone who memorizes the Quran is called a Hafez, is because they're guarding its integrity. So this is the most mass transmitted text in the history of the world. So now let's compare that against the Hadith. In the book, uh, Hadith Muhammad's Legacy in Medieval and Modern World, it, it states that as Ibn Salah, the most famous scholar of Hadith criticism in the latter period, explained, at most one Hadith, and this is the one that says, whoever lies about me, let him prepare for himself a seat in hellfire, would meet the requirements to be mutawatir. Means that uh, from his understanding, he believed that the only Hadith that might be considered that is this one Hadith, that the rest of the corpus by their definition, is not motawatir. It's just pure conjecture. It's zon. It's not certain information. In another quote from the same book, it says, in fact, when the Mutazilites had insisted that the Hadith be transmitted by a mere two people at every stage, the Sunni Ibn Haban had accused them of trying to destroy the Sunnah of the Prophet in its entirety. So merely asking to have Two witnesses for each stage of the transmission was enough for them to say that this would destroy the entire sunnah. This shows how poorly preserved the hadith corpus is. And in the same book we read this quote says, No hadith could actually be described as being narrated by a large number of narrators at every stage of the transmission. So this is not a problem for the Quran. The Quran again is the most mass transmitted uh, scripture in the history of the world. More people have memorized this book and passed it down from generation to generation than any other book in history. And I'm going to uh, end with one last quote from the same book. This is when Sunni legal theory matured in the 11th century, 
it was accepted that although Ahad, non-massively transmitted hadith, did not yield epistemological certainty, yaqeen, that the Prophet made that statement, they did yield a very strong probability, zan. This is just another word for conjecture. This was sufficient for fixing law and ritual. While almost all legal hadith were ahad, the Quran was epistemologically certain, massively transmitted from the time of the Prophet. So we can say definitively that the Quran was mass transmitted. It's legitimately mutawatir. We cannot say this about any hadith. There is no such thing as a mutawatir hadith. And we will look at the one hadith that they said, okay, maybe this one's mutawatir to show that even that hadith is not mutawatir, that it's not mass transmitted. It's just pure conjecture. So again, to say that the uh, Quran was preserved in the same manner as the hadith is just completely false. And this brings us to the fourth point. What was the effort of the individuals, the earliest Muslims, towards the Quran versus towards the Hadith? We see in the history books from Sunnis themselves that there was a deliberate effort throughout the entire earliest Muslim Ummah to preserve the Quran. According to their own sources, Abu Bakr and Omar, they nominated Zayd ibn Thabit to put together a compilation of the Quran. We're talking about a year or two after the Prophet's death. We see that Uthman, Again, did another uh, compilation of the Quran during his reign. And the Hadith also narrates that even before his uh, becoming of Khalifa, that Ali also did a compilation of the written Quran. So while we see very deliberate effort from their part to preserve, to write down, to transmit the Quran, there is not only no effort to preserve the Hadith, it's even worse than that. The earliest Khalifas had an active campaign to suppress and destroy hadith. So let's just go down the list. This is uh, regarding Abu Bakr, is that he assembled the people following the death of the messenger and declared that you people attribute such narratives to Rasulullah about which you, uh, you squabble. The generations coming after you will become even more entrenched in such disagreements. Therefore, it is necessary that you do not narrate anything by attributing it to Rasulullah. And then if someone inquires of you, say, between us and you, there is the book of Allah. It is therefore necessary that those things which the book has made permissible be allowed, halal. And those things that uh, have been declared disallowed, haram, be prohibited. So this is the history of Abu Bakr and his take on Hadith. In a, another narration, it says that he had a compilation of 500 Hadith. That one night he had trouble sleeping and he woke up in the morning and he burned them all. And when asked why he did this, it states that he did this because he was concerned, despite the fact of hearing these hadith, that he might have misconstrued something, and therefore he'd be attributing a lie to the Prophet and condemning himself to hell. And from the history books, it seems like Umar was even more staunchly against hadith. In this famous narration in Bukhari, number 114, it says that when the Prophet's ailment uh, became worse, he said, bring for me writing paper and I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. But Umar said, the Prophet is seriously ill and we have Allah's book with us and that is sufficient for us. So here's the Prophet himself saying, hey guys, give me a piece of paper. I'll write for you something that won't cause you to go astray. And Umar's response is that the Quran is sufficient for us. And this isn't some obscure reference. This is in Bukhari. Uh, in the uh, Tawil Mukhtalaf al-Hadith by uh, Ibn Qutaybah, uh, who's a contemporary to Bukhari, he writes, Umar, 
who was abrasive against whoever transmitted numerous hadith or reported information related to judicial judgment without any witnesses. He used to order the narrators to reduce the number of narrations so that the masses will not be confused or corrupted by falsehood. Additionally, it's reported that during his reign as Khalif, Umar did not allow the Prophet's companions to travel freely without his permission because he did not want them to propagate hadith. It wasn't until the reign of Uthman that this ban was lifted and the companions were allowed to emigrate to some of the newly Muslim conquered uh, lands. And it states, Umar detained Ibn Masud, Abu al-Darda, and uh, Abu Masud al-Ansari, saying to them, you have narrated hadith abundantly from the Messenger of Allah. It is reported that he had detained them in Medina, but they were set free by Uthman. In another narration, uh, it says, I heard Uthman, who came after Umar, addressing the people from over the pulpit. It is unlawful for everyone to narrate any hadith he had never heard of during the time of Abu Bakr and that of Omar. Verily, that which made me abstain from narrating from the Messenger of Allah was not to be among the most conscious of his companions. But I heard him declaring, whoever ascribes to me something I never said, he shall verily occupy his abode in the fire. And there's more, but I'm just going to end with this last one. This is, again, it's uh, attributed to, uh, to Omar. You'll find it in Tabari. Uh, and it reads that whenever Omar appointed his governors, he would go out with them to bid them farewell, saying, I've not appointed you governor over Muhammad's community with limitless authority. I've made you governor over them only to lead them in prayer, to make decisions among them based on what is right, and to distribute the spoils among them justly. I've not given you limitless authority over them. Do not flog the Arabs and humiliate them. Do not keep them long from their families and bring temptation upon them. And do not neglect them and cause them deprivation. Be exclusively devoted to the Quran and diminish the annotations of Muhammad and I am your partner. So here he's telling the people as they're going out on their campaigns to deliberately stay committed exclusively to the Quran and reduce their annotations, their commentary regarding Muhammad. And some of the specifics is given in another narration is when the companions arrived at Korza, the inhabitants came to them uh, and requested them to narrate traditions, but they declined to do so, excusing themselves by saying that they had been forbidden by the Khalif. Abu Huraira asked by Abu Salama whether he used to narrate traditions as freely in Umar's time as he was then doing. He replied, no. For if I had tried, Umar would had me whipped. And in one last one, it says, During the Caliphate of uh, uh, Umar, Hadith had started appearing in abundance. He made people promise to bring all these Hadith to him. As ordered, people brought their collections of Hadith to him, and then he gave the command for these to be burnt. So not only did the earliest companions, the earliest rulers, the, the, the ones closest to the Prophet, make zero effort to preserve or catalog the Hadith. They actually had deliberate campaigns to stop the spread of Hadith to the extent that they burned them themselves, that they punished people for spreading Hadith. And this is in their own history books. Now again, this is nothing like the preservation of the Quran. These same people made an active effort to preserve, to write down, to compile, to disseminate the Quran. So the claim that the Quran and the Hadith were preserved by the same mechanism, again, is a flat-out 
lie. And this brings us to the fifth point. Every Quran throughout history has been consistent, but this has not been the case with Hadith. Depending on the region, the compiler, the narrator, uh, you're going to get vast differences in the matan, the content of the Hadith. In a previous uh, uh, episode, we looked at what should have been considered the three most reliable Hadith and test their authenticity. We found that the Hadith failed every single time, that it, it lacked to prove its ability to determine authenticity. For instance, this one statement, anyone who attributes a lie against me will have their seat in uh, hell, which is considered to be the most mass transmitted uh, hadith in the entire hadith corpus. They have no clue if the word deliberate is in that sentence or not. Is the sentence anyone who tells a lie against me will have their seat in hell or anyone who deliberately lies against me will have their seat in hell. And this is not just a difference in word, it's a difference in meaning. And this is considered their most motawatar hadith and it's considered inauthentic. The second one was the hadith regarding the tashahud, that we have about six different uh, narrations regarding what the supposed tashahud uh, is of the Prophet. And this is a statement that he must have stated hundreds of thousands of times through his 23 years of delivering the message. Yet we cannot say definitively from the hadith which one was the actual statement from the Prophet. And ironically enough, uh, each of these uh, narrations claim that it was taught to them no different than the verse of God in the Quran. And the last uh, case study that we looked at was the farewell sermon, where again, we do not have a single transmission of what was actually stated from start to finish for the sermon. They're unclear exactly where the Prophet was when he gave the sermon. And then finally, when you look at the content of what's left, you have four different narrations that contradict one another. So again, the Hadith is inconsistent, but the Quran, on the other hand, is from a consistent source. In Surah 39, verse 23, it says, God has revealed herein the best Hadith, a book that is consistent and points out both ways to heaven and hell. The skins of those who reverence their Lord cringe therefrom. Then their skins and hearts soften up to God's message, such as God's guidance. He bestows it upon whomever he wills. As for those who sent astray by God, nothing can guide them. And then it continues in 39.29, says, God cites the example of a man who deals with disputing partners. It's like Hadith. Compared to a man who deals with one consistent source. It's like the Quran. Are they the same? Praise be to God. Most of them do not know. So to claim that again, that the Hadith and the Quran were preserved, were transmitted in the same mechanism. When we study that if this is the case, we should have consistent sources for both of them. But we see it's only the Quran that is consistent, while the Hadith is full of inconsistencies and pure conjecture. So this brings us to the sixth point, manuscripts. The Quran was written and compiled during the life of the Prophet. We explored this in a previous episode. Even the Hadith acknowledges a written Quran during the life of the Prophet. But even if we put that aside and we look at uh, the manuscripts, the written manuscripts of the Quran we have today, we have a number of manuscripts that they say by carbon dating correspond with the lifetime of the Prophet. But in addition, we have many manuscripts dating to the first century Hijra, and even more when you include the second century. But what do we find for Hadith? For the first hundred years, there is no written manuscript of Hadith. It doesn't exist. Even if tomorrow they pull one up, that's great. But the aspect is that you can tell this is not the primary focus 
of the Muslims of that time. If this was the cornerstone like it is today, we would expect way more manuscripts of the Hadith. So the fact that they're absent, again, shows that this was not the primary focus of the Muslims in the earliest times. Now, if we look at the earliest manuscripts of the Quran, we pretty much have the entire Quran in the first century. So we have the Birmingham Quran. Uh, this is only uh, two folios, but it's considered the oldest written copy of the Quran. Uh, it's dated between 610 to 645, so it corresponds with the life of the Prophet. If you look at the Quran of Uthman at Al Hussein Mosque, this is dated between 651 to 705, and it consists of 1,087 folios, uh, which signifies uh, over 99% of the entire Quran. We also have the Samarkand Kufic Quran, which is dated between 610 and 855. And this consists of 81% of the total Quran. Then we have the Topkapi manuscript, which is dated between 651 and the mid-8th century. And this again consists of uh, more than 99% of the entire Quran. There's also the Codex uh, Parisino-Petropolitanus, which is dated to the 1st century uh, Hijra, that again contains about 80% of the entire Quran. There's the famous Quran of Uthman in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, this is dated between 651 and 750, and it uh, contains 96% of the entire Quran. There's the Sana manuscript from uh, the Great Mosque of Sana in Yemen, and there are multiple copies of the Quran. Uh, they're partials, but nevertheless, these are dated between 632 and 671. And beyond that, there's many more manuscripts in the 1st century to 2nd century. This is just to give you an idea. And there's some sites where they have a number of these manuscripts, and they've transcribed them. And you can go through them word by word and see that every single Quran, that they're all consistent, that they all follow one form. And all this is proof uh, of the authenticity of the Quran. Now let's compare it against the Hadith. With the exception of one folio from Imam Malik's Mawata, the earliest writings we have of Hadith is from the 3rd century Hijra, from the year 252 Hijra, or 866. So you're talking about you know, almost 250 years after the death of the Prophet. And the book is Garab al-Hadith. And it's not even a book of Hadith. It's actually a dictionary looking at obscure words that are in the Hadith corpus. But the earliest uh, collection of hadith was compiled by a Persian imam, Mamar ibn Rashid. Two partial manuscripts of this book have been found in Turkey. One is from Ankara and dates back to 974 uh, CE or 364 uh, Hijra. So about 350 years after the death of the Prophet. So it took this long to have you know, our first uh, kind of, you could say, official uh, hadith manuscript. And what's interesting is it doesn't contain uh, the full isnad. Uh, many of the uh, sources for the hadith are anonymous. Uh, they're broken isnads. They're anomalous informants, indirect transmission, and reports from very weak transmitters. So it's not up to the rigor, despite the fact 350 years after the death of the prophet. So when I was doing my research, looking for the earliest hadith manuscript, I came across this tweet. And this tweet, it says that this is a uh, folios of the Damascus manuscript of Sahifat, uh, Hamam ibn uh, Mun Munbi, 
the earliest Hadith book for which we have manuscript. It was written in the 6th century. Hamam, uh, who lived from 660 to 719 AD, was a tabi'i and a student of Abu Huraira. And the person's asked in the, uh, the thread, it says, is this Hijri? And the person says, no. So, you know, I thought, okay, here's the oldest manuscript. Let me see if I can actually find it because the person has an image, but it's cut off. So I said, okay, well, that's peculiar. So I continued looking. And uh, just for background, this is supposedly a manuscript from a uh, uh, Hamam who was a student of Abu Huraira, who apparently compiled 140 hadiths that are attributed to uh, Abu, uh, Abu Huraira. Now, what's fascinating is the original manuscript is lost. And I was actually able to find the uh, certificate for the authentic uh, authentication both in uh, Berlin and in Damascus. And the certificate's written in French, but it pretty much says that this is not the original manuscript. This is a manuscript actually written in the 9th century. And what's interesting is apparently it has the Isnad that it goes from the Prophet to Abu Huraira to Hamam to Mamar to Abdul Razak, who lived in 744 through 827. So the fact that it has this Isnad in this manuscript shows that this is not the original. This is not from Hamam himself. They found something again from the 9th century. Now, I, I reached out to this individual to see if they would correct it. And as far as I know, I think the uh, tweet is still up. So it's pretty telling that we don't have these abundance of manuscripts of Hadith like we do the uh, Quran. It seems like this was an afterthought, like there wasn't a deliberate effort to catalog or preserve the Hadith. And this is also what we find in their history. So according to their history, you know, Sunni history, uh, it wasn't until the uh, uh, Khalif, uh, Umar bin Abdulaziz, who appointed Zuhri to start compiling the Hadith. And today, uh, you can say some, you know, half the Hadith in circulation uh, date back to this one individual, again, who lived a hundred years after the death of the Prophet. But we don't have, again, any manuscripts uh, of that time. Apparently, there was even a dispute regarding if it's okay to write down the Hadith because there is a Hadith where it says that the Prophet commanded no one to write down anything from him aside from the Quran. And the first actual compilation uh, of Hadith that was done, you know, semi-officially was the Mawat of Imam Malik, uh, who died in the year 179 uh, after Hijra. So you're talking about, you know, 160 plus years after the death of the Prophet. And from this, we actually have one folio uh, of the Mawata. It's partial, uh, but it shows that it's like, okay, and they dated to the year 179. So this is the oldest Hadith manuscript we have, 179 years after the death of the Prophet. Now, what's interesting is today, there's about 16 different transmissions or versions of the Mawata, and they vary in length uh, in which Hadiths they uh, contain. And it's unclear which one was the actual one that Imam Malik himself produced and which one was, you know, contributions and edited uh, by his students. So now let's look at the crown jewel because the Hadith corpus really comes down to Bukhari. Uh, he is their crown jewel of Hadith. And the question is, okay, what is the earliest manuscript of Bukhari that we have? So the earliest manuscript we have is from the year 407 uh, Hijra. So roughly 400 years after the death of the Prophet. And what's interesting is this is only a partial manuscript. It contains books 65 through 69 with book 65 being incomplete. The first full manuscript of Bukhari we have is from the year 1155 or 550 years uh, after Hijra. So 
You have to ask, why is it that it took this long to find a manuscript, let alone a complete manuscript of the uh, Hadith? And the reason is, is because when Bukhari first wrote his Sahih, he was not this revered figure. He was actually condemned by his people. And it had to do with his uh, stance regarding the createdness of the Quran. But nevertheless, they considered him unreliable uh, to the point that he was exiled from Nashapur. Then he was beaten up and had to flee for his life when he was in Bukhara, his hometown. And he died in exile in uh, Samarkand. And this was around the year 870. And for the next hundred plus years, uh, he was not really looked at fondly or even considered or revered or anything. And it wasn't until the turn of the millennium that things shifted. So up until this point, the Hadith compilers who were the most revered were the ones who had the biggest compilations. So you had individuals like uh, someone by the name of Tabarani, uh, who apparently, you know, had hundreds of thousands of Hadith in his uh, corpus. And we, we don't have his actual corpus, but we have this narration. says, I've narrated 300,000 narrations from At-Tabarani. Meaning that this guy had like a sea of Hadith. And what's funny is some of his Hadith, uh, despite the fact of how long he lived from the death of the Prophet, had Isnads as short as three people. So this just made a mockery of the entire you know Hadith sciences and Sunnah. And so what people did is they proposed, they said, look, let's go back to these Sahih compilations and let's say that limit our corpus, uh, you know, uh, material that we can ascribe to the Prophet to these six books. And it started with Bukhari, then Muslim, then Abu Dawood, then Tirmidhi. Uh, and they said, okay, if we do that, then in essence, we're going to reduce the possibilities of new verdicts, new rulings, new legal laws, and uh, uh, eliminate this need to constantly try to reconcile the Hadith with, you know, uh, it, with itself and with the Quran. Um, so they, they, they limited to those six. And they also included the Muwatta at times or the uh, Musnad of uh, Ibn Hanbal. And they really wanted to reduce the scope of Hadith. And once they did that, they started revering right the, the, the works of Bukhari and eventually Muslim and the rest of them. And that's a big reason that you don't see manuscripts prior to this date. That it's, you know, 400, 500 years after the death of the Prophet that you start seeing manuscripts of these Hadith compilations so again, all this points that the Hadith uh, compilations, these are later manifestations of the religion, that this was not the way that the earliest Muslims practiced, that if this was the case, we would have found numerous manuscripts, you know, from the first century, second century, but instead it's virtually absent from any of the manuscripts we find. And this is not the case for the Quran, right? We have so many manuscripts of the Quran. We have deliberate uh, campaigns by the believers to preserve the Quran, to maintain its integrity. And we don't see that being done towards the Hadith. So to summarize the six points, you know, to why the preservation of the Quran far exceeds, is way superior to the anything you can call the flimsy uh, preservation of the Hadith, is that one, God guarantees the preservation of the Quran. There is no guarantee to preserve the Hadith. Two, the Quran cannot be fabricated. We're not worried about fake Qurans floating around there. But this is not the case for the Hadith. There's millions and millions of fabricated Hadith that people had to sift through in order to try to find some to salvage you know, their entire Hadith corpuses. Three, the Quran is the most mass-memorized, mass-transmitted uh, text in the history of the world. We saw those uh, narrations that you know, even requesting to have two witnesses 
for each stage of the transmission of a hadith was enough to destroy the entire sunnah of the Prophet. 4. There was a deliberate effort from the earliest companions to preserve the Quran, but there was no effort to preserve, catalog the hadith. There was a deliberate effort actually from their part to limit the spread of hadith, to burn hadith. The fifth reason to why the preservation of the Quran is far superior to the preservation of the Hadith is that the Quran is consistent in transmission. We do not find these contradictions, these uh, multiple uh, attestations of the verses of the Quran. It's consistent through and through. And you can go again to websites, compare the uh, oldest manuscripts, and you'll see that they're all consistent. But this is not the case with the Hadith. The hadith is riddled with inconsistencies. Even if we select the most you know, reliable, what should be considered the most reliable test cases for hadith, we see that they consistently fail to prove their authenticity. And the sixth is that the Quran was preserved in written form. And again, we have so many manuscripts of the Quran from the earliest times uh, from that correspond with the life of the Prophet as well as the immediate years after his death. But when it comes to the Hadith, you do not see Hadith manuscripts until about 350 years is the first fragments that we find uh, after the death of the Prophet. And when it comes to like Bukhari, right, it's not until the turn of the millennium that we actually have a complete manuscript of Bukhari. You're talking about 500 years after the death of the Prophet. So anyone who comes and says that, hey, if you reject the authenticity of hadith, you're rejecting the authenticity of the Quran because they're preserved and transmitted the same, please share these data points with them and let them know that that is such an absurd claim and God is going to hold them accountable for such gross comparisons. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in touch, please join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. Um, if you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran City app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranCityApp.com website. If you want notes from today's discussion, you can go to Quran Talk blog, where you can find notes from today's discussion, as well as numerous articles on various topics. And um, if you want to get more regular updates, please follow me on Twitter at TalkQuran. And until next time, peace and God bless.